can be seated. And kids, we are glad to have you in the service. And so a couple of things that can help you on the back table, there's a couple of activity sheets. And then in the lobby, we have a speaker there. And in the cry room, there's a speaker. So if you need to get up and get some wiggles out, you can go there. And we are excited about our membership class that's coming up. And we'll be doing those on a regular basis throughout the uh, uh, foreseeable future. And uh, here, uh, over the last year, we've been talking all about things. Um, we walked through Ephesians and talked about being a church uh, on earth as the church is in heaven, and we're going through Revelation and looking at the, the victory of Jesus and the vision of Trinity, and it gives us a chance to kind of, there's been uh, lots and lots of things that have just kind of been said and put out on the table and spread all around, and then here's a chance to kind of um, collect them and organize them and clarify them and crystallize them, so it'll be uh, really helpful for everybody um, to, to go through. And, and David's right, one of the questions that we most often Often, or I most often get asked, not verbally, but I can tell it's what you're thinking when people meet Cynthia and I, is how did he land her? And we will talk about that. I'll give you a, a hint. A hint is uh, hypnosis. <laughs> so if you want to learn about that, I guess. So. We're in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. All right, kids, um, I'm glad you're here this morning so I can have some intelligent conversation partners. So don't, don't, feel afra uh, don't be afraid to speak up. Your parents won't mind. Um, how many of you have ever flown on a plane? All right, I know the Edgar kids, you guys just got back from a long plane ride. How long was the trip? Eight hours. All right, that's pretty long. How many of you have ever flown longer than eight hours on a plane? That's yeah, a long time. Even adults are raising their hands. <laughs> so I had to take kids on a plane. So sometimes plane, so our trip coming back from Ethiopia a couple weeks ago, we were on the plane for 17 hours. And like when you're large and um, in small plane seats, 17 hours is a really long time. So while you're on a long flight like that, there's a couple of things you get. It can be kind of fun because, I mean, you have to sleep on the plane. You have... You get ice cream. I mean, if you're lucky, they will feed you. You have to eat. And then uh, they'll have this screen where you can, like, watch movies and play games. So I want you to imagine you're going on a 17-hour uh, flight, and so you have to sleep, you have to eat, and then somehow you have to be entertained because you're, you're confined in the chair, and that's not easy. So let's imagine this is because none of you would act this way. But let's imagine there's another child about, well, we'll, we'll make it a boy. Imagine it's a boy because boys probably would. And then we'll make it like eight or nine, and he's in the, maybe 12, maybe 12. And uh, he's in the seat in front of you, and you see him, and he calls over. He raises his hand and asks for the flight attendant to come, and uh, it's... It's time for everybody to sleep. The lights are out, but he can't sleep. And he says, excuse me, do you have, uh, do you have my binky? And she says, well, I don't think so. What's your binky? He says, no, 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 you, we have to find my binky. I can't sleep without my, my binky. It's, it's a, a, a pillow with a Care Bears uh, pillowcase. And if I don't have my binky, I can't sleep. And she's, and she's accommodating, like Miss Beverly's a flight attendant. She, she oh, well, we'll help you. Let's see. We have pillows like this. But no, it's not my binky. I can't sleep. And like, ooh, it's going to be a long flight. And then a few hours later, let's say it's time to eat. And they're coming around with the meal. And uh, he says, do, do you have Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets? Do you have chicken nuggets? I need Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets. Those are the only thing I eat. I will not eat any other thing on the planet but Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets. He's like, well, no, we have these different things. This is all we have. We don't. He goes, ah, I 
can't eat. I'm going to starve if I can't have chicken nuggets. He's like, oh, how much longer? And then a, and a little while later, he, you see him kind of tapping the screen on the front, and it's not quite working. And so the flight attendant comes over, and he says, can I play Fortnite? Is there Fortnite on here? And he says, well, well no, we have movie. We have there. Well, nah, if there's no Fortnite, how am I going to survive? We got 12 more hours, and I'm not going to make it without Fortnite. And then let's imagine that all of a sudden the plane starts to shake, and it gets wobbly, and your heart starts to race. And then you hear an announcement from the, over the loudspeaker that says, this is your captain speaking. I need everyone to take their seat. We need to make an emergency landing. And he might not tell you, but what if he says, because we're losing power in one of the engines. Now, think about that for a second. In that moment, how important is having binky? Actually, it might be kind of important. <laughs> but in the grand scheme of things, binky doesn't matter. In that moment, how important is Chick-fil-A nuggets? In that moment, how important is Fortnite? It's not very important. In that moment, the only thing that matters, matters is power to the engine. If you don't have that, nothing else matters. And what we're going to talk about this morning is we're going to talk about the love of Christ, his love for you and his love through you. And what I want you to know is the love of Christ is not like a pillow that's going to make the bumpy ride through life smoother. Christ's love for you is not like Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets that'll make, you know, life just a little tastier. His love for you and through you is not like Fortnite that's going to make the boring trip through life um, a little more enjoyable. His love for you is like the engine, where if you don't have that, you don't survive. It's the engine that drives all of life. And one of the things we're going to see as we look at this passage is that the greatest thing you need at any time in any situation in your life is you need more of Christ's love for you and for others. It's the greatest need you have now, and it's the greatest need you'll always have. We need, the greatest need I have is more of Christ's love for me and for my wife and for my children. And oftentimes in life we think, oh, what I really need is like change of circumstances. But one of the things I'm going to see this morning is very often you actually don't need your circumstances changed. You need your heart changed. So you might not actually need a new boss. You just need Christ's love for your boss. Or you might not need a new neighbor. You might need Christ's love for your neighbor, his love for the lost, his love for the lonely. And the reality is we're so often less loving than we think, and we're, probably, we're, we're never as loving as we should be. So what we're going to look at this morning is what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus and Laodicea about how to maintain and generate um, to keep the love that they have for him. So we're looking at this series, so it would be helpful if you have your bullets and kind of follow along so you can see some of the progressions. We're just going to look at these two churches. We're going to compare them. And we're going to look at them under three points. Uh, their problem, Jesus tells them what the problem is, gives them his prescription, and then gives a promise for how they can be healed and fixed. But as we're looking at this, we're in a series where we're looking at the seven um, messages that Jesus has to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And uh, actually, Timothy, bring up the, uh, the map so you can see the seven churches 
uh, along the map. So there's seven churches, and you can see the thing in your, in your bulletin. There's a pattern, because what we're going to see is that the primary way he evaluates those churches are in three categories. It's their, it's their doctrine, their, their love, their spiritual vitality, and then their life. So, uh, and the way I always kind of, th- I always start, you know, it's head, doctrine, do they know, are they holding on to the truth? It's heart, are they spiritually revived, renewed, refreshed, do they love uh, him as they should? And then hands, are they living well, living faithfully? And you're going to see that those are the three kind of er- the, uh, areas of criteria and critique. But what's fascinating is when you look at the, the progression In churches 1 and churches 7, he critiques their heart, their love. And then in churches uh, 2 and 6, he actually calls them to faithful living, to live faithfully, endure, keep going. And then the three in the middle he critiques, they've given themselves over to false doctrine. And so we're going to start by looking at churches 1 and churches 7 and how he calls them uh, to spiritual vitality, emotional vitality, to love him again. And their problems, the two churches, Ephesus, Laodicea, their problems is they've lost their first love and they become lukewarm. So they've lost their first love and become lukewarm. So let's think about these and we're, we're going to compare them as we go through. So first, Revelation chapter 2 Verse 1 through 7 is uh, Jesus' critique of Ephesus. Now, let me kind of set the stage and background so you can have um, some kind of tangibility about Ephesus. Because Ephesus, uh, at this time in the Roman Empire, is the fourth largest city in the empire. There's Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, and then Ephesus. And it's one of the major um, intellectual, one of the major hubs of the Roman world. It's the gateway to all of, well, the map's gone, but uh, all of Asia Minor's there. That's Turkey. It's the gateway to the whole, that whole area of the continent. It was famous for its large harbor, its very flourishing marketplace, but it was especially famous for its temple to Artemis or Diana. She was the Roman or the Greek god of fertility. And it's really important when we think about Ephesus, and we didn't do a lot of this when we were going through Ephesians, but when you think about Ephesus, like you have to almost have in your mind, we almost can't talk about Ephesus because it's a family service and it's not appropriate. Because when you think Ephesus, you have to think like if somebody from modern day Las Vegas was dropped into first century Ephesus, they would be incredibly uncomfortable. Because they would think, this is just too much. This is like over the top, is how Ephesus was. And so the temple to Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world, but it was um, remarkably um, pagan. And that's not even right where I, yeah. You know what we're trying to say. So Heraclitus, who was a philosopher who lived first century, famous philosopher in Ephesus, he, uh, his, he was dubbed the weeping prophet. And this is what he says about his hometown. No one could live in Ephesus without weeping at all of the immorality. And this is a philosopher who recognized, like, this, <laughs> this city is vile. 
And it's one of the great miracles of the early church that a church, that Paul comes in and plants a church in this city of all places, and it thrives. And actually one of the amazing things about the church, so let me tell you a little bit about the church that grew. By the time John is writing this, it's been around probably 40 to 50 years, depending on where you date uh, Revelation. And so the church, let's kind of think about its pedigree of pastors and ministers. It was planted by Paul. And then Paul spent three years lecturing every day in the hall of Tyrannus for four hours training up its members. I mean, can you imagine a daily discipleship program with the Apostle Paul for three years? He stayed there longer than he did any other church. And then he sends, once he gets it kind of up off the ground and going, then he sends Timothy. So Timothy comes in and it's Timothy's job to stabilize it and get it um, really functional. But then as legend has it, Timothy was, was martyred, was killed by the Romans. And then the Apostle John goes and the Apostle John becomes its pastor. And then John, the, the, as legend has it, John brings Mary. And so Mary ends her days in the church of Ephesus. So when we talk about the church of Ephesus, this is a church that had, like, Paul founded it. Timothy was its pastor. The apostle John was its pastor. And Mary was one of the congregants. Could you imagine going to a church like that? Like, there hadn't been a church like that in all of history. And then you know how you go into some, they didn't have anything silly like this, but you go into some church and they have like book stalls with here's all our pastor's writings and all that kind of stuff and they're selling them. But if you had one of those in the church of Ephesus, you would have had, um, so you had the book of Ephesians that was written to them. And then from that church, that's where John wrote his gospel. That's where John also wrote the letters of John that went out. Um, that's also the church that Timothy was pastoring when Paul wrote first and second Timothy. This is, it's an unbelievable kind of resources that this church had. It's unlike in anything in the world. And yet look what he says. And you can see in the first couple of verses. So let's read how Jesus sets it up. And it's just kind of amazing to think about. Like if John was a pastor here, that was the beloved disciple, one of Jesus's best friends. And if Jesus' mother was a member of this congregation, but think how, listen to how the risen Christ speaks to them. He says, to the angel in the church of Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So you have this image of this, this congregation on the one hand, you know, I kind of tremble because the church in Ephesus was everything we want this church to become. They were an anchor church in that community that had generational impact. They were sending out church planners all over Asia Minor. They, were, uh, they had uh, teaching and training and ministering unlike any church in the ancient world. John Stott says you look at them and you see they're, they're energetic in their service, they're patient in their suffering, and they're orthodox in their belief. Like what more could you want? But Jesus says there's something lacking Notice what he says. You've lost your first love. And one thing, this is humble all of us, because if it can happen to them, it can happen to any of us. 
if they can lose their first love, then anyone can. And one of the things that makes you see is that love is a, it's a, it's a fire, it's a flame that needs constant attending and constant cultivation. And you think, I wonder what he meant when he said you've lost your first love. You know, the two great commandments, love God and love others. Maybe it's a reference to the first love, the first commandment. You've lost that first love for love of God. And you think about it for a second. What are some of the marks of first love? What would that mean? Think about in your own life whenever love for something was first kindled. Maybe it was a thing. Maybe it was a person. Maybe it was an activity. Can you think about how you acted and the things you did? You know, I was thinking about when Cynthia and I first started dating and the things you do. You know, you're so attentive and you're eager and you take risk. I mean, you sign up for things like ballroom dancing class that you would never be caught dead doing unless, but somehow things are motivated in a way it's not. You're all consumed. You seek to impress. You're always available. You stay like on the phone talking late into the night. You do obnoxious things like you drive eight hours from your home just to be around them for like two hours and then drive back. And then you do the calculus, 16 hours of driving, two hours of like FaceTime. It, it totally makes sense. Perfect equation. You do those kind of things. You long to hear their voice, see their face, to know them, to understand them. What do they love? What do they hate? And Jesus is saying, these are the type of things. They fill your, they fill your mind. They, that's what needs to be revived. And I wonder, what was, their, what was their problem? What causes love to dry? And I think for them, maybe, who knows? I mean, they were in an incredibly difficult context. But for them, it just... It's just this gradual, imperceptible, slow, steady, drying out. And Jesus calls them out on it. Now let's compare their problem with the church in Laodicea. So look over at chapter 3, verse 14. And let me set up a little bit about this church. So some of their just context and see if you see some things kind of hopefully will pop to life as we read it. But if Ephesus lost their first love, Laodicea is lukewarm. <coughs> And uh, Laodicea, the town, wasn't as large as Ephesus, but it was extremely influential. And they were a church that actually was founded. Uh, the church planner that started it was Epaphras, who was trained under Paul in, um, in, at the church of Ephesus. And then Paul sent him out. He planted the church in Colossae, the church in Laodicea. They were really closely um, connected. Now, three really key things about just the town. It was known internationally or in that world for three things. One, it was a center. So you kind of think, all right, what town in our world would this be like? But one, it was a center for international banking. So it was, it was situated <clears throat> along a couple major trade routes. And so it had become one of the wealthiest cities in the empire at that time. Uh, there was more, kind of what we would dub more millionaires lived in Laodicea than any other town per capita in the Roman Empire. It was really remarkable. Um, the city was actually destroyed in 61 AD, which depending on where you date this might not have been too... Um, a lot of time before when this was written. It was uh, destroyed by an earthquake in 61 AD, and they refused all imperial support, all government funds to rebuild. They said, no, thank you. 
we can do it ourselves, thank you. And actually the town motto, this was a popular town motto uh, in cities in the Roman Empire who were self-sufficient, it was, we need nothing. Need nothing. That was the town motto. And the idea, you remember in the ancient world, we think uh, nations, nations is kind of a modern construct, and the ancient world is cities. Your, who you were, your loyalty, your allegiance was to your city. So, like, it's not the Italian empire, it's the Roman empire, because Rome, the city. And this city looked at the other cities and said, no, we actually don't need you, your uh, imperial patronage and support. We are self-sufficient. So it's one of the uh, richest cities in all of the empire. Uh, you know, the famine that hit the, ch uh, the, the church in Jerusalem in Acts, you know, where Paul goes around and he's taking up a collection for uh, the Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, they actually sent a collection from Laodicea at the same time, and they collected just from the Jewish synagogues there, they collected 22 and a half pounds of gold to send back, which was an astronomical sum in that, in that time. So they were a uh, center of international banking. Uh, it was also home to one of the most famous uh, international medical schools uh, in the Roman Empire. And they were famed for their treatment of, uh, for eye diseases. They had this ointment that they would create that would cure eye diseases. And then it was also uh, the center for fashion, one of the fashion centers in the Roman world. So they, had, uh, they were noted for their soft raven black wool from their local sheep. And it was uh, one uh, first century writer said that uh, Laodicea is the most fashionable, well-dressed city in the empire. So now with those things in mind, let's read and hear how Jesus critiques them. Uh, one thing actually about the water that also sets it up, one of the, one of the problems they had is they actually didn't have a uh, fresh source of water. So they were dependent on two local towns. Colossae was one, and they were famous for their cold springs. And then uh, there was another town uh, just up north, Heropolis, who was a medical center that was famous for his hot springs. So they had two aqueducts coming in with hot water, cold water pumped in. But obviously, by the time I would get to the town, it's neither hot nor cold anymore. So listen to how Jesus addressed them. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would either be cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you can be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So listen to Jesus' critique. His critique is not that they've just become dry. His critique is you're delusional. You actually don't know who you, you think you're rich. You have all you need. But he says you're not. You're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He says wake up. One commentator said they suffered from affluenza. 
They were so affluent. You get that affluence? They were, without a doubt, the most uh, materially wealthy church in this whole list. But then notice what Jesus says. He says, I know your works. And then he doesn't mention anything. He says nothing. And goes straight to his critiques. That, and the things that they think are their, their, their strengths. You know, we have wealth. We have medical savvy. We have all this fashion sense. He says, no, they're, they're, these are actually your liabilities. You don't have a clear sense of who you really are. So let's look at his prescription. What does Jesus say to both of these uh, churches so they can revive. Look back in two. What does he say? So to the church in Ephesus who's just dry, they've lost their first love. Look in two, uh, chapter 2 verse 5. He gives them this three-step process. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, repent, and redo. Remember, repent, redo. He says, remember, don't seek something new, but you need to go back to something old. Remember who you are, what you've come to. Repent, change, turn, and then redo. Think about this for a second. How is when love uh, kind of flags or simmers, how is remembering the first step of reviving? So when the Bible talks about remember, don't think like absent-mindedness. Like when it says God remembered the covenant he had with Abraham, it's not like the covenant is like his keys, and he's like, oh, where are my keys? I put them somewhere around here. Ah, there they are. That's not what he meant by remembering. You know, kind of think of the word to remember. You know, the opposite of remembering is actually dismembering. So, like, if you dismember something on your body, you're taking something that belongs together and you're tearing it apart. And the first thing is some, somehow something that should be together has been separated. And so the first thing is remember. Remember who you are, who they are. What are the type of things that they should remember? Maybe remember the great gift of grace that they've received. Maybe remember who they are. Maybe remember that their life is short. We watched a documentary on Friday night called A Long Goodbye. And it was, I mean, we just weeped through the whole thing. So I don't recommend it unless you just like need your sinuses fully cleansed. But uh, it's a story of Karen, the Karen Tippett, Kara Tippett. And uh, she was uh, the wife of a young church planner who was 40, planted a church, four little kids. They find out she has uh, breast cancer, then they attack it, and then it's, it, by the time they kind of get in, it's spread to her whole body. And within two years of diagnosis, uh, to the end, she, she died. And it kind of slowly just walks through that process. And it was so moving. It was so... I mean, one of the things John Wesley said, the reason why the evangelical... In the first great awakening, it spread because he said, our people die well. And I would challenge anyone in the world to watch that and not see people gripped by the gospel die well. But one of the things it does, I, the words of Ecclesiastes was ringing in my mind, the wise go to the house of mourning and they learn. They learn. And one of the things it does is life is a gift. These children are a gift. Your relationships are gifts. It's all gift. And if you don't see that, if you don't remember, your love can grow cold. 
And then notice what he says. He says, repent. Recover what's lost by repenting. And I find that so interesting because his, his strategy for relational renewal starts with repenting. He doesn't say, all right, we need to get away. We need to have date night. Just you and I, you need to retreat. Maybe that's all fine and should come down the road, but it has to begin with the repentance. It's not a chemistry problem. It's not a culture problem. It's not a circumstance problem. It's a sin problem. Sin has made your heart cold. Sin has called you to dismember things that should be connected. And you have to begin with repent, repentance. And I just wonder, how often do we repent for having a loveless heart? How often do we repent for um, or seek to learn to love like Jesus? Where that's one of our highest priorities, to live with more of his love for us and for others. Then notice the last thing. He says, you got to redo. Redo. Do the things you did in first. Remember the things you did in the beginning that kept the, the flame fan. Do those again. Return to those. Now let's look at Laodicea. How does he counsel them? Notice uh, in starting in chapter 3, verse 18, he gives them also three, three things to do. He says, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you can be rich and white garments so that you can clothe yourself and your shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes. He says, first thing, you need to buy, buy from me real riches. Come to me and find real riches. See, he's using economic language that he knows they'll understand. And he says, no, your problem is not that you're too invested in wealth. Your problem is you're not going after real riches. You're settling for lesser riches. Don't settle for things that moth can destroy and thieves can steal. Lay up treasures that no one can touch. Buy from me real riches. And he says, you're, you're the best dressed people in the empire, but you're actually exposing yourself. You need real clothes, the real clothes of righteousness and good deeds. You know, one of the shocking things about the church in Laodicea is they were actually proud of things and boasting publicly of things that I think Jesus would say should cause you to weep. They were exposing themselves in that way. And he says, and then see, something that helps you see. You don't see the world or yourself as you really are. Come to me to get true riches, true, cover, true coverings, and true sight. But listen to the words in verse 19 because he's, he's hard on them. I mean, notice he says, you're wretched, pitiable, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. But look what he says in verse 19, those I love. This is me loving you, to waken you up to reality. It's almost like that thing that parents tell kids, you know, when they're about to spank them. You know, this will hurt me more than to hurt you. And then the kids are thinking, okay, well, let me do it to you. <laughs> he's, he's being hard on this. This is my, my love for you. See, I, Jesus loves us just like we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. He wants us to change. And then notice the promise he gives. Look what he says to the church in Ephesus, the promise. Um, he threatens to remove their lampstand, but then he says, if you endure, or if you come and if you repent, he says, to the one who conquers, in verse 7, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. I will open up a way so you can come to the tree of life and you can eat. 
You know, one of the interesting things about both of those promises, and I don't know quite what to make of this, but both of them have food at their center. They get a promise to come and eat from the tree of life, and the other one he promises to come and feast with them. But what he says, what fuels the continual love is you have to walk the way that leads to the tree of life and eating from the tree of life. And as we're going through Revelation, one thing, every single verse is echoing back and pointing back to the Old Testament. So all these kind of light bulbs should be going off all throughout all of the book. And when you're thinking, ah, tree of life. Where have I heard about that? What's, what's the biblical story arc about trees? Like, all right, there was a tree. There were two trees in paradise. And one was the tree of life. One was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it was, uh, they uh, falsely or, or uh, disobediently took from one tree and that tree brought death. And so now the way to the tree of life was blocked. In Genesis chapter uh, 3, it says that God stationed a, a cherubim with a flaming sword turning in every direction to block the, tray, the way to the tree of life. So now access to the tree of life has been blocked and there's a flaming sword turning in every way. So how do we get access back to that? And that's actually what happened to Jesus on the cross. On the cross, the, the, the cross is a tree of death, and it opened up the way for us to the tree of life. And Jesus is saying, remember, never forget that I came up to that flaming sword that turns in every direction, and I spread out my arms, and I had it, it struck me so that now a way could be opened so you can have access to the tree of life. The tree of death became for us the tree of life. And he says, daily eat. Remember that. Remember that. And that will fuel your love. But then notice the promise to the church in Laodicea in uh, chapter 3. Starting in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and open the door... I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. And there's a couple of things just grammatically I don't quite know what to do with. Because like in chapter 2, it's actually singular. The word to repent, you, it's actually you singular lost your first love. You singular repent. It's like, who's Jesus talking to? If he's addressing kind of the, the angel, the messenger, kind of the pastor over the community, it's almost like in chapter 2, he's looking straight at the pastor and saying, the church has lost its love for me and you have to repent. But what's so interesting about chapter 3 is notice he says, all of you, are you're all lukewarm and I'm on the outside knocking on the door and if anybody comes and opens up the door, we don't actually have to wait on the leaders or the people who have been approved or designated. Any person in this room hears me knocking come and open the door and I'm going to come in. And actually one of the great struggles that all of us have for our entire life is there will always be people knocking on our heart's door and the big question is who are we going to let in? And see, the problem they have is Jesus is on the outside. He's supposed to be on the inside, feasting with them. He's on the outside. So the question is, who do you let in? Uh, you know, thinking, is this like uh, the story that's coming to my mind, and this will tell you about our life stage, is thinking about the three little pigs and knocking on the door. Little pig, little pig, let me in. And they say no. See, one of the things we have to teach our kids, who do you let in when they knock on the door and who do you not? I'm actually worried because 
couple of our children will let anybody in who came to the door. So discernment, who do you allow in and then who do you keep out? But Jesus is summoning, come open up the door. It's actually me. It's your Savior who's knocking on the door. I was reminded of a story. Some of my friends in high school had this funny story that, uh, well, it's one of those stories that's really funny 20 years later because you know everything works out okay. But uh, two of my good friends in high school, they were uh, about 14 months apart. And when they were about f four ish and three ish, uh, it was one stormy day in Georgia. It sounds like a country music song. It's a stormy night in Georgia. And uh, the dad was doing yard work and uh, started storming and there was uh, a lightning strike in the, like in the yard. He wasn't struck directly, but it like struck a tree and the, and the, uh, like the electricity went through the ground and knocked him over and it was terrible like boom and he he starts like crawling to the door and he's he's knocking on the door like help let me in and the mom is panicking because she thinks it's a gunshot and she thinks the person on the outside is, is somebody who's who's shot her husband and is coming for the kids so she's like grabbing a baseball bat has the door locked and she's ready to defend her children with their life but it takes her <laughs> well let's see I laugh now because everybody's okay and uh, if you knew them you'd laugh too and it's better to hear them tell the story. But it's actually the dad knocking on the door saying, let me in. And that's one of the, almost one of the things you hear is Jesus knocking on the door. Now, he, he's not crawling, been struck by lightning saying, help me. But he's the one knocking on the door and saying, let me in and I'll come in and I will feast. And actually every week what we do is we come to the communion table to remind ourselves. That's the echo of the feast. It remembers and we remember and we're reminded. See, one of the things it's supposed to do is it's supposed to point our mind in two directions. It points us back so we can remember. Remember the sacrifice given for you. And we look forward to the feast that is to come. You know, when we think about communion, one image that may be helpful to think about is in the Lord of the Rings. In the second one, there's one of my favorite scenes in the book, and they do a pretty good job in the movie, too, is when in the second one when they're kind of holed up in Helm's Deep, and they think that uh, they're about to be destroyed, and then there's this horn blow, and they look on the horizon, and all the riders of, the, uh, of Rohan have come, and then they come down, and the knights ride to the rescue. There's this beautiful line in the book where Pippin, it says that Pippin, for the rest of his life, could never hear the sound of a distant horn without breaking into tears because he would relive the sound of the salvation and remember their sacrifice. And in some way, that's what the communion table is. It's, it's, it's the distant sound of a horn in the distance that to remind ourselves of the sacrifice. Or maybe another image might help you as uh, in a few minutes we're going to bring up the O'Driscolls and pray for them as uh, we're sad because they're moving this week. Mike's been transferred to a new post in San Diego. And one of the most moving experiences I've had was at a, did a funeral in our church in Alabama by a man who was a Marine, and he served at Iwo Jima. And uh, at his funeral, you know, they came and did the full color guard presentation, and then on the hill they did taps. And so you can't hear that sound and not be moved because it's like it's an echo. 
It's a distant sound of a horn that's reminding you of a sacrifice that was given. And that's exactly what communion is. It's an echo. It's a sound uh, reminding us. So let's take a few minutes and transition to that. We're going to pray for uh, us and pray for one another. So Lord, we pray now, we come and we ask that you would help us to always remember, let weekly the remembrance of you revive and renew and refresh our hearts and our loves. And we, we pray against indifference. We confess to you how easy it is just to drift in our relationships and how indifference can take over the things that are most important and the things that are most valuable. So we pray uh, for us. And now as we pray, also I want to pray for a couple things. I also, so we honor um, Mike and Jen in a few minutes. Just we'll pray for on this Fourth of July uh, week. If this if this is the holiday weekend, we'll pray and pray for our armed forces, and also pray for people in our church. Um, the Sudarmas are out in California. They went to visit David's dad, and then David's dad had some health complications, and they had to take him uh, to the emergency room, and so get his heart stabilized. So not really the way they wanted to spend their vacation with them. But we want to pray for um, anyone with family who are, who are suffering and then uh, pray for our armed forces and those who are serving. So God, we commend to your gracious care in keeping all those we know that are suffering, suffering from health complications like David's dad. I pray that you would encourage them and be with them in this moment. And I thank you for all those who have served, who are serving in our armed forces, serving at home, serving abroad. Pray that you would defend them and defend us each day by your heavenly grace. Pray for everyone who's serving or suffering, that you would strengthen them in whatever their unique trial and temptation is. Pray that you would give them the courage to face whatever dangers await them and grant them a sense of your abiding presence in whatever these days bring. Know this we ask in Christ's holy name.